Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Audio. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 20, The Wame Massacre. In its heyday in the 1920s, the Louisa Hotel off the bustling main King Street in Chinatown near downtown Seattle was a place where all peoples gathered to have fun. Inside the Louisa Hotel was a speakeasy called the Blue Heaven, and it was a sanctuary during Prohibition. After Prohibition ended, the Blue Heaven continued through the 1950s, but in the basement of the Louisa Hotel, the Wame was created. Tucked away, the secret Wame Club was an elegant and sexy place to enjoy a night on the town. For those in the know who wanted to be seen and have fun, dancing and partying the night away, the curved bar was always stocked, and the mahjong and paigao tables were flush with people and money. All were welcome. The only rub was that gambling was illegal. The English translation of Wame is beautiful China, but in the 1970s, the Wame wasn't as flush as it once had been, and by the 1980s, it had lost its cachet and glamour. But it was still a high-stakes, illegal gambling den, and it was a place where local restaurant workers and owners came to unwind after a long day of work. Food was cooked to order, sweet barbecued pork, noodles, steaming soup, dumplings, and good luck oranges that are believed to bring a sweet and long life. But on that night... February 18, 1983, the Wame Club would be at the center of the largest investigation in Seattle's history. This was at the very beginning of cable television. And so Channel 7, I believe, put a, a camera up on the entrance to the Wame and basically ran that footage for hours watching detectives and the Emmy and all the people going and coming and eventually hauling the body out. And four decades later, the grief and sense of loss will never be erased. Well, they have a unique culture, let's put it this way. There's a lot of things that bring good luck. There's a lot of things that you won't do at all. And by the way, I might add, as a rule, to this day, you will never see an older Chinese person in this alley. They won't go down here. Everybody knows what happened down here. But prior to that, that place had been uh, padlocked. And the padlock you used to see was the original one the detectives put on a long time ago. I met retired Seattle Police Detective Sergeant Joe Sanford at a coffee shop one day. My name is Joe Sanford. I'm a retired Seattle Police Detective Sergeant. 
And on uh, the Wami massacre, I was the sergeant uh, in charge of the investigative unit. We were there to talk about his work on the Wame massacre investigation that happened so many years ago. Back then, the Wame was located in Chinatown. But today, for clarity's sake, Chinatown is now referred to as the International District or the International District Chinatown. Detective Sanford says he will never forget the call that he received in the early morning hours of February 18, 1983. He was next up as the homicide detective on night duty. middle of the night I was my wife woke me up I didn't hear the phone ring she woke me up and said police radio wants to talk to you when radio got on they advised me that they had uh, multiple victims down at South King Street and Maynard Avenue South that it was at the Wami Club on that call Detective Sanford was told that the chief of police was on his way to the Wame Club and he was asked to call in other homicide units which he did he suggested that I call out extra help. So at that time, I did call Sergeant Cameron and told him that the Wami Club had multiple victims down. Well, he hung up on me. He thought I was messing with him because the Wami Club is kind of a, in an area where, uh, where uh, not many people talk about it. The detective thought the call was a joke because it was well known by the 1980s that the Wame Club kept a low profile. They didn't want attention. They had a reputation for serving stiff drinks and food after hours. When I first came on the department, I heard about the Wami Club. Uh, some of the late-night policemen used to stop there and have a drink on their way home. It was a gathering place of uh, most of the Chinese restaurant owners, cooks, and people that work extremely long hours. And they would go down there to relax after work. And here's where it gets a little sticky. The Wame Club was well known for its illegal gambling, an open secret within the city. The policy was to turn a blind eye. Well, the gambling is kind of like in the back room of a club, not like it is in Las Vegas, but it is an area where they gamble on uh, different Chinese games, mahjong and other, other games. Primarily only Chinese participate in the games. No policemen uh, uh, participated in the games. It was obviously 100% Chinese and primarily Chinese restaurant owners or visitors from other cities that may come to Seattle and uh, of Chinese descent and uh, they would participate in the gambling. It was illegal gambling. It was tolerated by the city. It was well known that a lot of politicians received generous donations from the Chinese community. But according to Detective Melton, who worked alongside Detective Sergeant Sanford on the Wame investigation, you can't eradicate illegal gambling. And the Wame wasn't the only club that got a free pass. As a young patrol officer, I had been taken in there by an older patrol officer. And it was basically a Chinese gambling operation. It had a complete bar, but then you went past the bar and turned right and you were in a room that was just all round tables for, for cards. And what, what year was this when you were on patrol? 1968-69. Gambling is so, obviously it's illegal now, it's very common, it's just not a big deal. What was it like back then? At, at that time there was a toleration policy in King County and you go into a, a tavern or a restaurant and they had what were called pinball machines. 
pennies and you'd put in either nickels or dimes and win games and the proprietors would pay off on those games which was illegal but it was tolerated everybody knew it and if you talk to the business owners they basically made enough off of those machines to pay their rent so it wasn't like it was a big deal but it was going on and, and people accepted it and in what we called then Chinatown the International District everybody knew the Asians all gambled and so there were different gambling places around Chinatown and so it was just kind of tolerated because it wasn't it, it was just kind of a cultural thing and nobody really took it too seriously occasionally the vice unit would would make a raid on one of the gambling dens and it was usually because somebody had complained and but it was uh, it was just accepted the wame was legendary for having the highest gambling pots the gambling there at times was very high stakes High rollers would come from other towns as far away as Texas. Uh, San Francisco had people that came up quite often to participate in a high-stakes gambling. And uh, supposedly, uh, the pots would run seventy-five to $100,000. So that, that brought people from all around the uh, distant cities that happened to be high roller gamblers. For context, $80,000 in 1983 would be worth about $238,000 today. With money like that, the Wame had to have tight security to protect their patrons and all that money. The entrance to the Wame club was in an alley. The door to the club was monitored by a man who sat behind four rows of opaque glass blocks. The guard on duty controlled the main door and would only buzz in patrons or staff members if he could identify them or if they could be vouched for by another customer. No one could just waltz into the Wame Club. The first security door, before it is open, there's a guard sitting there that has a little small window that he looks out, and he'll talk to you, and if he thinks that you're okay to be admitted, that he knows you, then he'll open the door to get you into the first little section, and then... uh, you may wait there for a minute if he's not quite sure until somebody else from the uh, inside comes and verifies, hey, I know this fellow. Then he'll open the second door and you go in. If you were buzzed in through the main door, you were then confronted by not just one set of steel doors, but two. Uh, if that person's there, they'll go, get, they'll go check with them. When he's okay, they open the first set of doors. Okay. But then you about... Uh, 12 feet, there's a second set of doors exactly like these. These are steel doors. I mean, these are fire doors that are uh, real secure. Then uh, something happens uh, and he discovers you're there, he won't open the inner doors, but usually it's okay. So you what were in. the inner doors? The inner doors let you into the bar. But like, what were they steel or were they regular steel. doors? They're, they're just like these doors. Really? Yeah, they're the same. Another set. Another set like. of. Thick steel doors. There's no way you're going to kick the door down. If, if you were going in on a police raid or something, you'd have to have a lot of uh, power to break through either door. The security was foolproof, but there was one flaw. The owners of the club and their employees never envisioned a situation where trusted patrons 
would game the system by robbing the Wamei and killing any witnesses that would be left behind. When Detective Sanford arrived at the Wamei after 1 a.m., there wasn't a security guard at the door. He easily slipped past the two metal doors down inside into the club. As I entered the club, there's a landing. It's on the same level as the, it's a real fancy looking bar, a shiny bar, a big bar with uh, mirrors on it. And that was to my left. To my right, there was a view of the lower restaurant area. That's where the gambling occurred. Uh, it's about two steps down or maybe a, a foot lower than the scene I was on. Uh, I could hardly believe what I was looking at, you know. Even though I was the only one there, it was eerily quiet. Obviously, I saw 12 people that were hogtied with hangman's nooses on them and obviously all deceased. The floor was literally covered in blood like somebody had dumped a 30 or 40 gallon barrel of blood on the floor. It was the most horrific crime scene that Detective Sanford had ever seen. And even though he was a seasoned detective, by then, he stood paralyzed at the foot of the steps. Noose knot. Oh, and what are those the knot is pulled behind them, and they raised their feet oh up like that, gosh. and they tied the noose to their... The noose was around their neck, and the noose then ended up on their feet, and it was bound up, so they were, they were helpless. So they uh, saw what was coming. Well, they saw what was coming, yes. Thirteen people had been murdered hogtied. They were laid out on their bellies, shot execution style. As I stood there, the chief came in. I wasn't aware that he was there. And suddenly I looked to my right or left, I don't remember. Uh, and the chief was standing there and we both just continued looking at it. And uh, we didn't speak. But then I broke the conversation or he did. One of us said, you know, this is pretty bad. And the other one said, yeah, yes, it is. You know, it, it seems strange, but I just felt I could smell death in there. It was just a such an unusual, undescribable smell that came from there. The chief of police would look at Joe and say, if there's anything you need, anything, you've got it. And he repeated it again. He says, I mean, anything that you need, you can have it. You just ask for it. Uh, he obviously was knew that this was going to be a, well, it was the, actually the, probably the most prolific mass killing that had occurred in the United States at that time, if you consider it just for criminal means, you know, there had been other more uh, in numbers killing like the Texas Tower, but they were uh, mental people that were killing people. And uh, obviously now we got terrorists that do the same thing. All the homicide units were called in to assist, as was the FBI. But one of those calls came to Detective Dan Melton. Approximately 1 a.m. in the morning, got called at home, told to respond to the office, we've got a major homicide scene. So, showered, got dressed, drove down, went to the office, and there were two detectives, homicide detectives, John Bourne and Dick Steiner, I believe, in the office, and said, oh, Dead Bodies, Chinatown, the Wame Club. Detective Melton says when he walked inside the Wame, he still remembers the uneven floor, the old building that had once housed the luxurious Louisa Hotel back in the early 1920s had now settled, and the basement floor had become uneven over all those years. 
go into the WAMI itself, into the club, and the victims are still there, still hogtied. It was like? surreal. I mean, there were 13 victims, all hogtied, and if you went into the gambling parlor portion of the building, it was an uneven floor. So these victims are there, they've all been declared dead, and their blood is still draining out of them. So, and it's starting to pool in the low part of the floor in this huge room with the tables and the victims all laying there on the floor all tied up. It was, uh, I haven't had nightmares or anything, but it's something that stays with you. So I have to pause here for a minute, because when I met Detective Sanford at that coffee shop, I wasn't expecting him to pull out the crime scene photos from the Wame. He just laid them on the table, and they were in full color in front of me. Having listened to both Detective Sanford and Detective Melton describe what they were confronted with at that scene, hearing their descriptions of what the victims went through, but then actually seeing the photos of 13 people hogtied, their pockets rifled through, and then knowing that they watched as the killers went down the line and shot them. It's indescribable. I actually saw the, the picture of the murder scene, a picture of the murder scene, and one of the things that just stuck with me just from seeing that picture was that these are not high rollers. I mean, these are people who look like, you know, I waited tables in college, and like, they're, they're just going there after work to... They're working people, and they mostly work in different Chinese restaurants around the region. There was one of the, still there, a Chinese restaurant in Edmonds, and they would, the van would go to Chinatown, pick up the cooks and the waiters, drive them out to the restaurant. It would close at 10, 11, 12 at night. Van would take them back to Chinatown, where most of them had apartments and lived, and they'd go to their gambling establishments till five or six in the morning. So it was just a way of life. But miraculously, there was a survivor. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Detective Sanford had been made aware that there had actually been 14 people at the Wame that night. The car dealer, an employee of the Wame, named Wai Chin, he'd survived the massacre. He'd already been rushed to Harborview Medical Center, which was just a few miles away. Wai Chin had also been hogtied. And in the chaos, he could see that the robbers were going through again after they went through their pockets, systematically shooting the victims execution style to make sure there were no witnesses left alive. So Wai Chin had already been shot in the jaw and he was bleeding profusely. So Wai Chin crawls deep under the table and pretends to be dead. But then when they had shot all of them, they went back around and was giving them a coup de grace. Well, the only survivor... Wai Chin, bless his heart, he was a wonderful man. He seen what was happening, and he'd already been shot in one jaw. 
one side of his jaw. They went back around. He seen what was happening. They was methodically going around. So he crawled back under the table, hoping that they would miss him. Well, they looked down and seen him, and they seen that he was bleeding real heavily, but not wanting to get down in the mess. They shot him on the other jaw, and uh, obviously he was uh, rendered unconscious at that time. After the shootings, they emptied everybody's pockets and their purse. I might mention one la- there was only one female in uh, in this party, and before they shot her, I think it was probably in, uh, they didn't like to, it was more their culture not to harm females, so they put a towel over her before they shot her. Wai Chen's quick thinking saves his life, but he received a second shot to his other jaw, which rendered him unconscious. When Wai Chen comes to, everything was still. Laying there, he knew everyone around him was dead. He also knew that if he was going to survive, he had to get out of there. He needed help. So he crawled across the floor, an arduous process. He was still hogtied. It was slow going. He passed in and out of consciousness, fighting back waves of pain and nausea. He finally got through the first set of the two steel double doors. There was no security guard there to help. The on-duty man had been murdered as well. Now, Wai Chin had become a prisoner inside of the Wame. He had trouble opening the first door from the inside. That would be the second door from the outside. And he got in the middle between these two doors and the door to the inside of the Wame Club locked shut on him. He had a hard time opening the second door. And after he opened it, he just barely got out the door and he collapsed again. And that's when a passerby noticed him and came up and talked to him. And that's when the police department got the call. Uh, Wai Chen was able to tell him that everybody was dead inside. Detective Sanford's first priority was getting to Wai Chin. It was critical that he spoke with the survivor. When we entered Harborview, we were directed to the trauma unit where he was being treated. It was full of, I would guess, 10 people, I'm sure. Many of them were doctors and nurses, and uh, they were just, you could see, they were just frantically working, trying to uh, save his life. I approached one who I knew was a doctor and said, we need, it's urgently urgent that we talk to him and we need to talk to him right now. And he said, well, he's in very, very, very critical condition. So please make it brief because the briefer you are, the more chance we'll have of saving his life. They knew that Wai Chen was so badly injured that he might not make it. And he was the only person who could possibly tell them who did this. Detective Sanford remembers what a tough call it was. They had to speak with Wai Chin, but they also had to tell him that he might not survive, and this would be his dying declaration. But he is, he is communicating. Now you have to remember this is a Chinese fella that doesn't speak really good English, but he Who's keeps- Who's been shot in the, in the, in the jaw. jaw. Yeah. But he is cooperative. He wants to get this solved, and he tells us mock mock. We finally realize that that's the name of one of the people that shot him. Detective Melton describes speaking with Wai Chin, who made it very clear that there were two suspects. On the hospital bed gurney on the way to surgery, Wai Chin lifted himself off the gurney trying to talk with both sides of his jaws being shot. He said Benjamin Ng and could only make out mock. The detectives went back to the Seattle Police Department with this new information. 
Who was Monk? Get the information now at this point, we respond back to the office. And there's other detectives have been called in, and two of the detectives are working a case involving Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng, and it's the bean sprout ladies. Back at the station, the murkiness of the mass homicides became a little clearer. There were other Seattle homicide detectives who were very familiar with Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng. In the south end of town, a couple of weeks before, there was two what we call the bean sprout ladies. One of them, as I remember, was named Lau, I think L-A-U. I don't remember the other ladies, but they were uh, found bound in duct tape, almost like you would find a mummy ground in, wrapped in duct tape. And uh, both of them were shot. And the, the other homicide crew that had been uh, investigating that, thank goodness, had got to the point where they identified uh, all three people that were there. And the three people that were there was Willie Mock, Benjamin Ng, and uh, another a youngster named Bon Chin. And uh, the information they had developed, Bon Chin was just there. Bon Chin was kind of a follower, and he was friends of of Willie Mock and friends of Benjamin Ng. And uh, uh, they, Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng, knew that the bean sprout ladies raised uh, vegetables in the basement of her home. And she sold it to primarily all of the restaurants in Chinese restaurants in Seattle, uh, in King County and Snohomish County and parts of Pierce County. And uh, they knew that she kept large amounts of money at the house and probably jewelry. The kind of the culture at that time was most of the, uh, or many, I will say many of the Chinese restaurants didn't put their money in banks. They took it home with them and kept it in safes. And you know, most of the Chinese employees knew this because they were longtime employees. And obviously, Benjamin Ng and Willie Mock knew this. They knew that these ladies would have quite a bit of money and they wanted to rob them. You found out that they killed the bean sprout ladies. Why weren't they apprehended before they... They were, they were in the very process. I, I'm sure that the arrest would have been imminent at that time, but it hadn't occurred at that time. Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng had a long history of targeting the Chinese community. They knew that many Chinese business owners didn't trust banks, and so they kept their money at home. This distrust of financial institutions, especially recently arrived immigrants and older Chinese immigrants who remembered China's cultural revolution when the communist government seized all bank assets. Between that and the language barrier, it felt safer to not hand over their hard-earned money to banks, which made them vulnerable to robbery. Successful restaurant owners especially became natural targets. When word would spread by employees who were able to calculate how much money they were making, as was the case with Bon Chin. 
Lily and Benji asked him as their friend, he was a follower, he said that we'd like to watch some Chinese movies. And they knew that the Bean Sprout ladies had a big library of Chinese movies. And uh, that was one of the few places where they could go and get Chinese movies and watch them. Well, Bon Chen said, I'll take you there, but you can't come in. These ladies don't like you. One of the ladies actually raised Bon Chen when he came over from Hong Kong, raised him from a child up and was considered kind of, uh, he called her grandma. And he says, grandma won't let you in. And uh, But if you stay in the car, I'll uh, I'll get the movies. So they went out there. And bon Chen was afraid of Willie Mock, afraid that he'd shoot him because he was, he had, talked about and he knew about some of these other killings and so when they went out and knocked on the door uh, through the intercom grandma said come on in and uh, so he started in well uh, Benjamin Ng was near had slipped up nearby and forced the door behind him before he could close it and so he went inside and Bon Chin had no choice then but to ask for the movies and so on and while he was asking for the movies, the mother or the, the ladies there, I forget which one, produced them for him. About that time, uh, there was a doorbell rang and Benjamin Ng went and opened the door and let Willie Mock in. Well, that, at that time, then uh, Bon was, Bon Chen was helpless. There's nothing he could do. And shortly thereafter, uh, after they forced the ladies to, I believe, open the safe and gather the money and jewelry, they bound them up with, with duct tape and killed them both. After the Bean Sprout ladies were murdered, Willie Mock threatened Bon Chen, saying if he told anyone, he would kill him and his family. According to Detective Sanford, the investigators working the Bean Sprout ladies' murders were just days away from getting arrest warrants for Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng when the Wame massacre occurred. We were just getting into the uh, to the Bean Sprout ladies' case because a couple other detectives handled it. They were too very competent detectives too. And uh, they were just about, if it had happened a day later, I'm sure Willie Mock uh, would have been in jail and maybe this would have never happened. Investigators dug even deeper into their past, revealing a long list of burglaries and another murder they were suspected of being involved in. Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng had broken into the house of a person that they knew had a lot of money, and they stole their huge safe. Once they were at a secure location, they broke into it and took the money, but then they had to get rid of that safe. So they loaded it into a vehicle and drove to Lake Washington. Using a dolly, they rolled it onto a dock and then dumped it into the lake. A daily jogger in the area watched these young men as they dumped the safe into the lake. So this man was by himself and he seen it and he thought it was strange behavior looking at somebody dumping a safe when they dumped the safe as they walked by him Willie Mock took a pistol out shot him in the head killed him and then they started back for the car and he returned and gave him what we call a coup de gras shot to make sure that he was dead this whole group felt that if you get rid of the witnesses there's nobody going to testify you and so you'll never get in trouble it's very cruel every killing that they did was a cruel killing and uh, in most of them they went back and did a what we call a coup de gras killing and the wami they did the same thing Armed with this new information about two potential suspects in the Wame massacre, Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng, two teams descended on their homes separately at the exact same time. So that's where we focus now. 
on who we're after. So then we get Mock's address. He's living with his family. And half of us go to Mock's address, and half of us go to Benjamin Ng's address. And he, at that point, was living with Girl and her family. So my partner and I, with Joe Sanford, respond to Mock's family house three, four in the morning, we're pounding on the door, and we go. Where's Willie? So you, it, it happened really fast that you guys got a suspect. Yes. So this is happening in real time, really fast. Like, you go to the hospital, like, the murders happened at, like, 1 o'clock in the morning, and yeah. you're already at a suspect's house at 4 o'clock in the morning. Yes. Wow. Detective Sanford. You know, the elder, his elderly pa- parents were, were nice people. And, you know, they, they didn't know what, what was going on. And this Willie Mock was at a, actually at another location. After the Wame massacre, Willie Mock stuck around at home only long enough to leave some money and then took off again to a bowling alley. We got the search warrant, went in, searched the bedroom, found the money, found an empty holster, quite a bit of marijuana. That was about it. And then... We're packaging stuff up to take it to evidence. And it's about 9 a.m. and the phone rings. And one of the other detectives that was there picks it up and answers it, and it's Willie. And he hands me the phone. He says, it's Willie. you got to talk to him. So I get Willie on the other end, and I can hear at the time... He's in a bowling alley because you can hear the pin machines and that falling. And I talk him into coming back to the house. What do you say to him? Just tell him your parents are here, the police are here, your parents, your family are really upset. They need to talk to you. We'd like to talk to you. You should get over here. Did you mention Wami at all in that conversation? Not at all. Not at all. Why did you not want him to know? I didn't want to get him upset, set him off. You know, we know what you're up to. It was just, we want to talk to you. There's been some situations here involving, a, I'm not sure if I said anything about the bean sprout ladies. I just said, there's a lot of police here, and they're going to stay here until you come back. And so he has a friend of his drive him back to the house, at which point he gets out of the car and we got him. He had to have known, like if you're there early in the morning, I don't know, what, what, what do you think his state of mind was? You know, it's, I don't know, he, he came in. I wouldn't have. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, <laughs> yeah. but at, at this point it's like 9 or 10, so he may think this is just a regular day at the office for these cops. So he's going to, he's already gotten away with the homicides he thinks he's gotten away with them with the bean sprout ladies. And there was another shooting involving a jogger on Lake Washington on the boulevard. So he's, you know, And you guys have already West. connected all the dots with the, Joe told me about the, the jogger who saw them dump the safe and they just killed him because they wanted to get rid of witnesses. My impression, my feeling on the WAMI case itself is this was the most thoroughly investigated homicide in Seattle history. Every 
rumor, every lead, every clue was thoroughly investigated. If we got a rumor, we'd trace it back to where it started, take statements from people, and the Chinese community was totally cooperative. I mean, when we came in, identified ourselves, they knew who we were, and they answered questions. So it, it, we just ran down every possible lead or rumor. Or Meantime, as detectives are collecting Willie Mock and Benjamin Eng has been roused out of bed and taken into custody, images of the Wame Club were plastered all over the news with wall-to-wall coverage in what would become the largest investigation in Seattle's history. More Murder Chronicles after the break. It shocked the community. It, it really shocked the community. It shocked the area. Within the next couple of days, I had calls from Interpol. I had calls from China. I had calls from San Francisco a lot because San Francisco had a lot of the same type of activity going on. We eventually went to San Francisco and talked with uh, some uh, uh, police officials down there. But we couldn't find any links from the Seattle group to any other group. You know, we were, uh, Interpol and uh, the other units that were calling thought that they might be part of some gangs in, in San Francisco and some of the other cities had gang problems, real bad, bad, bad people. But they were very willing to help us, but we didn't need their help because we found we could find no connection to any other gangs. It was just a local two little punks in Seattle that uh, started this thing and uh, for the prior couple of years were doing all kinds of criminal activities and none of their followers would, uh, would tell anybody. At the police station, Willie Mock and Benjamin Eng were taken into separate rooms and interviewed. What were these guys like? Very calm. You know, they weren't agitated, they were answering questions, just not upset at all. I think they really thought they were going to get away with it. They'd already committed three homicides and hadn't had been called to task on those. So I think they, they just had no idea of how much information we had on them. I don't think they had a real respect for human life. It just was, they took care of their own needs first and everything else was just secondary. So if somebody got in your way, you had a gun, you didn't like him, you just shoot him. Uh, just no so respect for So you don't think that they're human. like a psychopath or like a sociopath? sociopath? No. No, I think they just, they just had no respect for human life. They just only took care of their own basic needs. By this time, investigators knew there was a third suspect. They thought it might be Bon Chin, the young man who had unwittingly brought Willie Mock and Benjamin Eng to the Bean Sprout ladies' home. But Bon Chin had been working. They found out it was Tony Eng, who was the third man. There's no relation between Tony Eng and Benjamin Eng. They get taken to jail. We take their clothes, give them jumpsuits, jail jumpsuits, and they're done. They're locked up no bail, and now we start the process of putting the case together for presentation to eventually take it to trial. Mm -hmm. And so they're in high security se section of the jail, and that 
it just progresses from there. The only thing that really at that point we were still working on was the third suspect, Tony Ng. After the massacre, Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng had went about their lives, but Tony Ng didn't. We ended up his interviewing his father and his uncle up in Linwood. That's where the family business was, the Ng's family kitchen restaurant. And that, they're no relation to Benjamin Ng? No, not at all. And so I think if I recall, uh, Joe said that Willie wouldn't give up Tony Ng. Like they said, there's, we know there's a third suspect, but he wouldn't say who it was. Why yeah. do you think that he would, it sounds like this guy has literally no, like why would he care if Tony got in trouble or not? It seems like he might use Just that a, as. A, a running mate. There was a, a whole group of them that ran together. And Tony, I, if I remember correctly, was, was kind of on the outside of this. He was becoming more westernized. He liked skiing. He had a 240Z that he drove. He, his father was in the club that night, and I've always wanted to sit down with him and ask him, what would you have done if your father was there? Didn't he help tie them up? What was Tony's role in this? As far as I remember, he helped tie them up, but he claims that he, he had to go along with what they were doing or Willie would have shot him. Do you believe that? Yeah, possibly. I think once they went in and started the robbery and started collecting the money, they were committed. They knew that they were known to a lot of the people in there. So there was going to be retribution if they left anybody alive. But he could have just killed Willie. Right. <laughs> I mean, if he was worried about... You know, Possibly, like, but then he's got Benjamin to deal with as well. So, you know, you're 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 the third wheel, and you're the the least likely. He hadn't been involved in any crime that we knew of to that point. So, so he really got roped into something that he. Yeah. But still, like when you look at how they were hogtied, how they died. I mean, it's hard to. But he left town. He went home, talked to the old man, and split for Canada. He was gone. In June of 1984, Tony Ng was listed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitives. He was arrested four months later in Canada by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. From the very beginning of the investigation, a task force had been organized, and one of the main priorities was reaching out to the Chinese community and assuring them that they would prosecute this case to get justice for the families. Detective Sanford says, understandably, Chinese immigrants were wary of law enforcement because of what they had endured in China. But when it came to the Wame investigation, they were extremely supportive of task force members, making sure that they got answers from the young men who had hung around Willie Mock and Benjamin Ang. It's just unbelievable that it happened. I, uh, I don't know what else to say. You know, the Chinese people are the finest people in the, in the world. And the people that we interviewed, the 
parents of these kids, you know, we went to them and told them, hey, we're not looking to put your kid in jail because he participated in a in a burglary or something, only if he participated in the WAMI. That's what we're looking at is the, uh, and I remember one father told his son, he says, we told him we wanted to take him down to the basement and talk to him away from the folks. And as we were taking him out, the father said, if you, if I find out you lied about one thing, he said, I'm going to break your leg. And it sent chills up my back because I I knew that father would do something horrible to that kid if that kid wasn't truthful. I mean, the families were certain, certainly supportive of, of their kids, but they were also supportive of law and order once they found out how bad this was. Through these interviews, they were able to piece together that 22-year-old Willie Mock had racked up several thousand dollars in gambling debt. To make good on these debts, he started planning the robbery of the Wame Club, and he enlisted the help of Benjamin Eng. Both Benjamin and Willie went to high school together. Later, during the trial, it was revealed that Willie Mock had been planning the robbery for some time, discussing on multiple occasions his idea to rob the Wame and kill all the witnesses. The men chose that specific night because they believed that a high roller from San Francisco was expected to be there, but he didn't show up. Tony Eng, who has been described as a shy, quiet, reserved 27-year-old who worked at his parents' restaurant in North Seattle, was brought into the plan at the 11th hour. At his trial in 1985, Tony said that he owed Mock $1,000 after gambling with him the night before the massacre. Mock offered to forgive the debt if he would participate in the robbery at the Wame Club. Tony would say that he had no idea that they were planning on murdering anyone, that he did help hogtie the 14 people, but that he left after that. And he was actually outside the club when he heard the gunshots coming from the basement. Tony also said that the day before the robbery, he borrowed $1,000 to repay Mock, but instead of accepting the money, Mock drew a gun, shot a bullet at Tony Eng's feet, and threatened to kill him and his girlfriend, and then destroy the family's restaurant if he went to the police. But the linchpin in this case was Wai Chin, who had survived his injuries, and the city would spare no expense in keeping him safe for years. Secret Service type protection. They had a specially built van that Boeing Airplane Company helped them build that was gunproof and uh, outfitted enough that you could fit six or eight people in pretty well. And they used that, and the entire time until it was a while before we had uh, the trial for Benjamin Ng and then Willie Mock, and uh, they provided, I mean, they provided protection all during this time. Uh, They took uh, Wai Chen and his wife, very nice lady, that they provided protection for. They kept him in a, uh, they rented an apartment for him down on Western Avenue. And so they rented him a, a suite of rooms. And then the detectives had the room right straight across from him. And they rented that and kept it. They took him, uh, you know, if you're going to keep a guy for a year and a half to two years, you're going to have to have him do things. You have to go shopping with him. You have to take him out to some, they took him to the racetrack, uh, Long Acres, uh, regularly, he loved horse racing. They took him fishing in eastern Washington, uh, and of course, obviously, every time he went to court, they would go to court with him. 32 shots had been fired. 26 of those were from the same 22 caliber gun, and each victim had been shot in the head at least once. 
Billy Mock was convicted of, of the aggravated murders and sentenced to death. Benjamin Ng was convicted of aggravated murder, but the jury decided not to give him the death penalty. And I think the reason that they decided not to give him the death penalty was Benjamin Ng's mother testified in court. Despite an ironclad case, of course the trial was extremely emotional. She bowed to the judge. She turned and bowed to the witness on the stand. She turned and bowed to the audience. She turned and bowed to the jury. She turned and bowed again to the judge. And she kept that going, and they had a hard time even stopping her. Uh, She bowed to all of them a couple of times, and they finally had to, uh, prosecution had to say, hey, uh, stop that, and then re-swore her, and she did it again and did it again. It was obvious. Here was a mother pleading desperately with the court, don't kill my son. Tony Ang was convicted of 13 counts of first-degree robbery and a single count of assault with a deadly weapon. Each robbery charge brought a minimum sentence of five years to be served consecutively. But at the end of the trial, people needed to move on. I think once the trial was over, They wanted to move on and get away from it. We Mm -hmm. had contact with some of the surviving family members, and we'd see them in the community periodically, and they were always friendly and appreciative for what we'd done, but it was just, they were moving on. They just didn't want to dwell on this at all. Moving on is one thing, but according to Jake, who is the owner of a true crime tour in Seattle, the Chinese community will never forget. First of all, it was so heavily publicized. It was on TV, on every station, constantly. I mean, it was a really big deal. And not only here in Seattle, but all across the country, and even internationally. Um, And it went on for a long, long time, because first of all, Tony Ng, Uh, He was the one that was captured up in Canada, and he was on the loose for at least six months. So there was a big manhunt going on for him. And then the other two, um, Willie Mock and Benjamin Ng, they were caught very quickly. But then, you know, there was all of this, particularly with the newspapers, a lot of, you know, descriptions about them, about their life history. It was just a real big deal. It was in uh, news magazines, you name it. It was just a huge major deal. And it went on for years because there were so many different trials. And the poor lone survivor, uh, Mr. Chin, he was 62, I believe, at the time. He had to live under heavy police guard for 10 years. 10 years? I thought it was a year. Mm -hmm. It was 10 years? It was 10 years. And they, the city rented him an apartment. They put both he and his girlfriend in it. And there was a cop outside his door all the time. Because Willie was trying to say, oh, he didn't have anything to do with this. The Tongs did. And, you know, that was part of his defense. Well, that wasn't true at all. It was Willie's ball game, so to speak. But at any rate, uh, they only had one witness and they needed to protect him. And unfortunately, that guy, you know, he never really truly recovered from his injuries. It was just awful. And then to have to live like that for the rest of his life. So why did they have to protect him after the trial? Well, there was more than one trial. I mean, Willie Mock had at least three. Uh, Tony Ng, I think, had at least two. And Benjamin Ng had a number of them. 
and you know Willie was sentenced to death and um, then uh, they got a stay of execution he was going to be executed and um, then um, it went back to court again and they said oh well we can't do it we didn't hear all the circumstances of his previous years you know and how hard it was for him and blah 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 so then they stayed it permanently and then they eventually changed it with another court trial or hearing or whatever that okay he will never be executed but he'll never get outside of prison walls either didn't he also have to sign something that he would stop stop trying to get new trials and like that was part of the deal too because he I kept wouldn't be getting all these new trials and yeah stuff. which was very expensive I had met Jake in Seattle, and I climbed into her touring van. The extra noise that you're going to hear in the background is from this hulking cargo van as we headed for the basement that once was home to the Wame. Jake says, even after all these years, the darkness of what happened there four decades ago is still so heavy in the neighborhood. As we drove through downtown Seattle on our way to the International District Chinatown, we talked about Tony Ang being paroled after serving 28 years in prison. Tony... The guy that got uh, convicted of aggravated uh, robbery and one assault. The only reason why he got that is he had a great attorney, and I've forgotten his name. But uh, the survivor, Mr. Chen, he said, I saw Tony with a gun. Tony claimed that he had no idea this was going to happen and that he was uh, blackmailed into doing it. Well, you know what? He was just as responsible as the other guys. But... He got, he served time, kept coming up for parole, was denied, and then eventually they granted it to him. Very controversial, I might add, and then promptly deported to Hong Kong. From her perspective, Jake shed some light into the robbery so many years later. I was never able to get a number from the detectives about exactly how much money was taken from the robbery. But at the time of this massacre, not so much anymore. It was just a place where... People, you know, business people could go and relax after working hard all day. You know, it was primarily business owners like restaurant owners, you know, people that don't work regular nine to five hours. Do you know how much they ended up getting from the, the robbery? Because I'm that's one thing that I've been trying to get to. That is very interesting. I read one source where it was only 20000 but Willie had a gambling debt of 30000 and he wanted to pay off that debt that night. See, he was expecting a high roller. High roller didn't show up, fortunately for that guy. But then I've also read that they got 40000 So who knows, really? It almost seems like it's kind of hush-hush. As we pull up to the building, Jake and I walk to the alley, to the entrance of the Wame Club. To this day, the same family who owned the Wame back when this terrible tragedy happened still retains ownership. The reason why you're seeing the building the way it is now is because of the terrible fire that happened back in 2013. And it happened right at the top of the building, enter the alley. Those upper floors were sealed off for at least 25 years, no electricity up there, and yet this fire started on Christmas Eve, 2013. To this day, they do not know why it started. But um, this was all redone, and places are starting to move in, yet nobody is renting this part down the alley. So in... The, okay, so it happened in 1983. Right. 40 years. Yeah. It's never been rented out again. It's never been used again. No. 
Well, they have a unique culture, let's put it this way. There's a lot of things that bring good luck. There's a lot of things that you won't do at all. And by the way, I might add, as a rule, to this day, you will never see an older Chinese person in this alley. They won't go down here. Everybody knows what happened down here. Nearly 40 years ago, on February 18, 1983, 13 people lost their lives. John Louie, Chong L. Chin, Wing Wang, Mu Min Mar, Jean Mar, Henning Chin, Dewey Mar, Jim Lun Wang, Hung Fat Ji, George Mar, Jack Mar, Chin Li Law, and Chin Wing. These are the victims of the Wamei Massacre. What happened at the Wamei Club would forever change the community. And yet, the International District Chinatown isn't defined by it. And Wai Chin's incredible story of survival, the man who would go on to assist the Seattle Police Department in bringing some measure of justice for these grieving families. As always, I want to thank you for listening to The Murder Chronicles. I also wanted to remind you to check out our bonus content. Every week, my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I go over the case in more detail. And for ad-free listening, check out Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.